Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors, just like you, about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, this is Laura Gregg. Welcome to the Stronger Everyday Wednesday webcast, where we seek to provide valuable insights to financial advisors in in a bite-sized format. We take these webcasts and also make them available afterward on our new podcast series, the Flexible Advisor Podcast, which you can find wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Today, I am thrilled to have Eric Noenzi with us. Uh, Today's 15 minutes will take a little bit of a different trajectory. Eric is a healthcare analyst, the senior healthcare analyst here at Northern Trust, and he will be talking about the trajectory of the coronavirus, the impact it's having, and what you need to know. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Eric. Thank you for joining us. Great. Thank you, Laura, and good afternoon. So I'm going to cover a few topics today. And as background, uh, we've been trying to estimate the trajectory of the coronavirus since back in January. And we wanted to make an objective analysis based on clinical information and real-time data to provide a framework for our investment process. Um, The big caveat is that the data continues to evolve on a daily and weekly basis, so it should be relied on with some caution. So to start with, uh, we compared COVID-19 to other outbreaks in recent history. And shown here are two prior coronaviruses, SARS and MERS, and two influenza viruses, H1N1 and seasonal flu. And when we compared these viruses on clinical metrics, including mortality rates, COVID appeared to be framed characteristically somewhere between those two groups of viruses, with a mortality rate on the order of 1%, which is lower than SARS and MERS, but higher than H1N1 and seasonal flu. But COVID has been so much worse than those four. And why is, so, why is it so different? Well, it's really the hospitalization intensity and the heavy burden on the healthcare system and the healthcare workers, and that's what stands out. And we have estimated that about 300,000 patients could be hospitalized in the U.S., which is of similar magnitude to H1N1 and seasonal flu. But it's clearly worse because of the toll on healthcare workers and the intensity of patient care. And that's what overwhelms the surge capacity of the system in some areas, plus our lack of adequate PPE. So we think this hospitalization intensity is an important factor as we evaluate what the off-ramp could look like. In other words, how will we eventually get clear of this disease or approach a steady state similar to seasonal flu? Will it be a vaccine or continued social distancing? Or as some have suggested, just allow the virus to grow and we can build up herd immunity. But for all of those solutions, our hospitalization capacity is the key limiting factor. The uh, trajectory of COVID-19 um, based on mortality in three global zones. And each zone here illustrates a unique situation. And this chart shows mortality per day on a log scale. And the key area to focus on is the slope of the curve on the right side of the chart, which represents current trends in daily mortality. The first zone uh, that we'll look at is South Korea. And we see this as the gold standard for preparedness. They used high-tech measures for containment. 
including GPS contact tracing. They had widespread diagnostics. They tracked visitors to the country using contact tracing mobile apps. And you can see here that they were able to bend the curve early in the outbreak. And now they're almost back to zero mortality, which is very encouraging. But they're still maintaining strong surveillance and they have not yet fully opened up the economy. So it's possible that South Korea and other regional areas such as Singapore and Hong Kong could be a model for what the future looks like in the U.S. during a containment phase this year. And for example, in some of those areas, schools are open, restaurants are open at half capacity. And if we look at the real-time data that tracks mobility within cities, it's about 30 to 40 percent of normal activity levels. The second zone is the U.S. and Western Europe, and shown here are the U.K., Spain, and Germany. In each of those uh, areas has now plateaued in mortality and looks to be trending down. And we would say that if there is a desirable model for the U.S. and other EU countries, it could be Germany, which has had relatively good results based on widespread diagnostics. And last week, Germany began a slow and staged return to work, which is a good sign. But restaurants are staying closed and there'll be no large events until August 31st at the earliest. Um, we've looked at some of the real-time data of mobility and other activities around the world. And we think a bulk of the activity in the U.S. Uh, began to shut down around March 19th. And if that's correct, then we think the U.S. curve has peaked and should continue to turn downward from here and into May. And we believe we should see a similar pattern in other European countries. The third zone shown here is India and Indonesia. And these are important because they have large populations. They're geopolitically important. They have uneven healthcare infrastructure, and that gives the possibility of becoming, uh, turning into a humanitarian crisis. So also they are significant for the question of whether the virus is less transmissible in hot and humid climates. And that's important as we consider the possibility that the virus could subside in cooler climate countries such as the U.S. as it warms up in the summer. Uh, there's a potential hint here that there is a climate effect, but it's really too soon to say in Clearly, it's not completely halting the virus. Also, there's some cause for caution here because the curves do not yet show evidence of plateauing, even though there are lockdowns in some of these countries. And also, there are questions about undercounting of mortality in their data. And it's possible that the true mortality is similar to what is being seen in Europe and the U.S. So we're watching these numbers very closely for clues on the global trajectory of the virus. We have been estimating the uh, forward timelines on a rolling basis. And because the mortality curves appear to be leveling off and descending now, everyone is now focused on the shift from COVID mitigation back to containment. And as is now generally accepted, widespread diagnostic testing is the key ingredient for returning to containment. And now we've done about 5.8 million swab tests in the U.S. And that is about uh, that's less than 2% of the population with an average rate of about uh, somewhere over 200,000 tests per day over the past week. And this is the swab test that detects active virus. We believe we need to get to at least 250,000 tests per day or at a rate of almost 1% of the population every two weeks at a minimum. So it would be ideal to get to twice that rate or 1% of the population every week, but it's doubtful we can get to that level in the near future. We also need to improve turnaround time for the tests, and uh, we need to also start testing non-symptomatic individuals. And California has become the first state um, that we're aware of to start doing that, and that's a good sign. The second type of tests are the antibody tests, and this is the blood 
based test that looks to see if an individual has antibodies to COVID as a way to see if that person had been infected previously, maybe without knowing it. So theoretically, those individuals could resume their normal routines and they could possibly go back to work. But in our view, there are still uh, many unknowns about this test. And for example, we don't know how accurate they are. We don't know if every person develops antibodies, even if they are infected. And most importantly, we don't know if the presence of antibodies give a person immunity to reinfection. So in our view, we should not count on the antibody tests. Uh, but even if they do work well, um, if they do work well, then we think that could accelerate our path to recovery. So then on the timelines, um, we had previously estimated a peak in U.S. cases in April, and now we think mortality numbers should decline into May or June. At some time in May or June, if U.S. case numbers are low enough and the diagnostic tests are widely available, uh, we think it's feasible that most states sh uh, could begin uh, the first phase of containment. And as you know, 13 states have already partially reopened, representing about 18% of the U.S. population. Another seven states will begin to reopen in the next week or so. And so the total uh, will represent over a third of the population, um, the largest state being Texas. Uh, Texas uh, will allow retail stores, restaurants, theaters, malls to reopen at about 25% capacity. So, and some counties with uh, fewer uh, COVID cases can reopen to 50% of capacity. How the rest of the country reopens and the pace of reopening really depends on local government decisions. The Trump administration has outlined three phases for the recovery and the initial phase is dependent on seeing 14 days of declining cases in the state. But it's unclear if state governors will use these guidelines or adopt their own criteria. In our view of a phase one, um, the reopening could potentially include visits to doctors, dentists, barbers, and possibly some businesses restarting with employee staggering and maybe allowing some small social groups. And after that, uh, if we can eliminate most cases of community spread, then we could potentially move to a next phase in July or August. And that could allow for religious gatherings and restaurants at higher capacity and uh, some larger social groups, uh, but all with some maintained uh, social distancing. So if we can continue to contain the pandemic, then we might allow larger activities such as schools, sporting events and conferences um, to go on into the end of the year. So again, this is a hypothetical framework and it can uh, vary widely by state and there are a lot of unpredictable political factors at play, but we wanted to have some idea of how the off-ramp could play out. And what are some of the variables for the containment phase? Well, one key factor is the effectiveness of social distancing by region and the impact of early, early reopening in some states. And this is a big unknown factor now that some states are reopening on the early side. So a lot will depend on how individuals behave more than just the fact that a state is reopening. So one way we can look at that is by monitoring some of the real-time data. Another variable is uh, we think having a large stockpile of high quality PPE is necessary for moving forward. And uh, that's obviously because if we do see pockets of uncontrolled spread again, then we'll be able to protect uh, the, the healthcare workers. And we think the availability of mobile apps that can be used for contact tracing could be a key ingredient. And Apple and Google have announced a partnership on an app for that purpose, and uh, that could begin in May. Uh, herd immunity is a topic that is sometimes discussed. We think it's unlikely that this will be a solution. Importantly, the percent of the population that needs to have immunity for herd immunity to 
work is thought to be on the order of 70%. So if we are currently at no more than 5 to 10% uh, exposure in the U.S., then it's unrealistic to expect herd immunity to work without a vaccine. Here, uh, we review some of our thoughts on potential drugs and vaccines. And the, the overall message here is that we believe public health measures are more likely to provide the core solution to this outbreak than a treatment or vaccine over the next 12 to 18 months. So I'll just go, so I'll just go through some of the most discussed therapies. I'll start with remdesivir. This is from a company called Gilead. And of the drugs we've looked at, we see this as the best hope for treatment. And we've placed a moderate probability of success on this on the order of 30%. But you probably heard just this morning, there's been an announcement that a placebo-controlled study has, quote, met its primary endpoint, unquote. And so we need to see the full data to know exactly what this means. Um, it's important to, to see the full data to know the magnitude of the benefit. So even if this drug, quote, works, uh, it may only have a moderate benefit. So, um, but even a small benefit is positive. The other important thing to remember is that this is an intravenously delivered drug. So it would be only for hospitalized patients. This is not an oral drug that could be widely used as, a, as prevention. The next drug is hydroxychloroquine. And there had been high optimism for this, but uh, the more recent data has not been as positive, and there are some safety questions with this. And so from the start, we placed a low probability of success for this drug, and we'd estimate something on the order of 10%. The next category, category are the antibodies, and there are two types of antibodies for COVID. Uh, the first type is used to suppress the immune system to prevent the body's own response to the virus, something called cytokine storm. And this has been effective in some oncology settings. So this is something that could stabilize the patient. It's not, it's not um, seen as a, really a cure. The second type of antibody um, are antibodies taken from an individual who had COVID and may have built immunity, something called convalescent antibodies. And we also see for this overall group of antibodies, a moderate probability of success, something on the order of 30%. And it may be one of the better hopes, but it, it probably doesn't represent a cure. The last category are vaccines, and some say the pandemic will not be over until we have a vaccine, and so they're uh, counting on uh, a vaccine being available in the next 12 to 18 months. But we would be on the more cautious side, and it's important to note that for products for disease prevention, there's a higher safety hurdle than for drug treatments. And so there are some high-quality companies working on this, including J&J, &J, Glaxo, SmithKline, and Pfizer, but the challenge is um, you need significantly sized trials just to show a benefit. You have to have long safety data, and there are manufacturing challenges as well. Um, Sanofi has said they expect the vaccine in 12 to 18 months. J&J &J has said potentially 12 months, and a representative from the NIH said potentially this year. Um, we think vaccines have a reasonable probability of working, but it probably takes longer than 12 to 18 months in our view. So I don't want to sound too negative. The bottom line is we think that we'll have to rely on public health measures over the next 12 to 18 months to contain the pandemic. And we think it can be done without a treatment or a vaccine, but we think a treatment or a vaccine would accelerate our path to uh, recovery. So with that, I'll hand it back to Laura. Eric, thank you so much for your insights. Um, you know, as we go through this, it just, there continues to be so many questions. So we will be posting this webinar on our podcast series, as mentioned before, the Flexible Advisor podcast, where you can find other insights from industry experts on the return back to the office and what considerations you as business owners should be considering. 
Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Stay healthy. Thank you for listening to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.